You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Friends and foes, oil on troubled waters, Shell and the Ogoni. If you work in corporate sustainability and responsibility, as I have done for 20 years now, Shell in Nigeria is inevitably part of your lexicon, one of the case studies trotted out with regular monotony at conferences and cocktails around the world. In this I am no different, as it happens I have had a few personal encounters with the country and the company, which I will explore in this episode. However, let me start with the infamous case itself, put some of the facts on the table, so to speak. Shell's experiences in Nigeria show that it isn't always exclusively environmental issues that catalyze a crisis, nor is it only when the company is directly involved in an incident. In the 1990s, tensions arose between the native Ogoni people of the Niger Delta and Shell. The concerns of the locals were that very little of the money earned from oil on their land was getting to the people who live there, and they were also suffering from environmental damages caused by Shell's practices. In 1993, the Movement for the Survival of the Ogoni People organized a large protest against Shell and the government. In response, Shell withdrew its operations from the Ogoni areas, but the Nigerian government raided their villages and arrested the instigators. Some of these arrested protesters, human rights activist Ken Sarawiwa being the most prominent among them, were tried for murder, which they denied, and were executed in November 1995. This was despite a plea by Shell for clemency and widespread opposition from the Commonwealth of Nations and international human rights and environmental activists. Despite Shell's official opposition to the executions, activists around the world vilified the company in wave after wave of angry protests and damaging boycotts. There was even a court case against Shell in the US, led by close relatives of Ken Sarawiwa in 2002. One of the reasons Shell was targeted was that it was, and continues to be, in bed with the government. This is a literal fact. Shell Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria Limited, or SPDC, is the operator of a joint venture between the government-owned Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, which owns 55%, Shell, which owns 30% total, which owns 10%, and Agip, which owns 5%. Rightly or wrongly, stakeholders believed that given those close ties, Shell had to be complicit in the government's campaign against the human rights activists, and must have had the power and influence to stop the executions. This somewhat incestuous relationship between Shell and the Nigerian government persists to this day, between 2006 and 2010, SBDC paid $31 billion in revenues and $3.5 billion in royalties and taxes to the Nigerian government, 
In fact, according to Shell in Nigeria, 95% of their revenue after costs goes to the Nigerian government from each barrel of oil that SPDC produces. Can a company that is so enmeshed with the government ever be truly sustainable and responsible? I believe this remains one of Shell's most serious and enduring challenges. After 1995, under the leadership of Sir Mark Moody Stewart, Shell began to implement extensive policy reforms, including increased stakeholder engagement in a campaign called Tell Shell, as well as community support, environmental management systems implementation, notably ISO 14001, and reporting on social and environmental issues, both in Nigeria and internationally. It was the latter two issues, ISO 14001 and sustainability reporting, that brought my world into an overlapping orbit with Shell in Nigeria, although that was already some years after Ken Sarawiwa's death. Triple bottom line challenges. At the time when the Shell fiasco was in progress in 1995 and 1996, I was in the process of leaving my management consulting career at Cap Gemini behind and embarking on my MSc studies in human ecology at Edinburgh University. Looking back, I'm surprised I was not more aware of the protest activity, be that as it may not long after, when I was running KPMG's sustainability services in South Africa, I very quickly got up to speed on the legacy and ongoing challenges of Shell in Nigeria and elsewhere, as they were a major client. In fact, KPMG's sustainability practice in the Netherlands had worked closely with Shell to pioneer its triple bottom line reporting approach, and the KPMG Norway practice were working with Shell in Nigeria on sustainability reporting and environmental management. Two things stick in my mind from that time. One was being rather puzzled by the failure of Shell Nigeria's health, safety and environment reports to mention the Ken Sarawiwa incident, which was still very much at the forefront of Shell protests and boycotts both in the country and abroad, if ever there was an elephant in the room. The second recollection was a trip to Nigeria by one of my team members, Shireen Naidu, to do an audit on the ISO 14001 system. When she returned, I was aghast to learn that at one point, their shell vehicle had been surrounded by an angry mob that threatened violence, after which they travelled to shell sites by helicopter and with an armed guard. It is a grave lesson in corporate sustainability and responsibility to know not only that such hostility between Shell and the community could exist, but that it still exists to this day, more than 15 years later. And it still costs the company dearly. Shell tends to argue that the source of conflict nowadays is a very small group of agitators and organized criminals, most often not from local communities who have a maligned political and economic agenda of their own. Whichever version of the truth you accept, one thing is undeniable. The impacts have been catastrophic. According to Shell's 2010 sustainability report, gangs kidnapped 26 of their employees and contractors that year, down from 51 in 2009, and one contractor was killed in a related assault. Also in that year, an estimated 100,000 barrels of oil were stolen from their pipelines, causing extensive environmental damage. 
They report that sabotage and theft together accounted for more than 80% of the spill volume from their facilities in 2010. So what can we learn from all of this? How has Shell responded? The company's ongoing critics focus on three main issues. The environmental impacts of Shell's spills, the health impacts of its gas flares, and the enduring lack of human development in the Niger Delta, despite billions in oil revenues generated in the region. On all three issues, Shell has made progress, albeit not enough. For instance, in 2010, in order to lessen its operational spills, the company completed construction of a $1.1 billion replacement pipeline, the 97-kilometer Nembi Creek trunk line. And in January 2011, they launched a public website which tracks their response to an investigation and cleanup of every spill from their facilities, whether operational or the result of sabotage. On the issue of flaring, since 2002, flaring from SPDC facilities has fallen by over 50%. Nevertheless, the company has been unable to meet targets to end continuous flaring. They claim militant violence has prevented safe access and a lack of funding from our government partner has delayed progress. Now that conditions have improved, however, they've begun installing equipment that will reduce gas flaring from their facilities, costing the company $2 billion in addition to the $3 billion already spent reducing flaring. On the difficult issue of poverty in the Delta, Shell presided over many failed and frustrated projects before it changed the way in which it approached community development. In 2006, it introduced what are called Global Memorandums of Understanding, or GMOUs, which are intended to put communities at the center of planning and implementation. Communities identify their own needs, decide how to spend the funding provided by the company and its joint venture partners, and directly implement projects. By the end of 2010, the company had GMOUs in 244 communities. One example Shell cites is Port Hardcourt, where the GMOU model was used to launch the Niger Delta's first community health insurance scheme. More than 8,000 people had signed up by the end of 2010, and many have now received previously unaffordable medical treatment, including vaccinations, maternal care, and operations. Annual premiums are around $50, with GMOU funding subsidizing half the amount. This compares, for example, to a typical fee of $300 to $350 that women in the Niger Delta pay for care during pregnancy. Sustainable Business Revival With Shell in Nigeria being so much part of my consciousness throughout my career in sustainable business, I even profiled it in one of my books called Landmarks for Sustainability, I'm as surprised as anyone that it took me until 2011 to finally visit the country. And as if to make up for lost time, I've since made five trips to Lagos to deliver sustainable business training courses hosted by Ken Egbas, Managing Director of True Contact and to present at conferences like the first Africa Roundtable Conference on CSR, the International Conference on Corporate Social Responsibility in Sub-Saharan Africa, and the International CSR Conference at Lagos Business School. 
I come away with mixed feelings about the country, certainly the raw vitality and aggressive ambition, or is it just survival instinct? This is palpable. And as in so much of Africa, the culture and its people are colourful, hopeful and friendly. But there is also the malaise of powerlessness in the face of endemic corruption and greed among politicians, not to mention the inertia of crumbling state apparatus and economic injustice. The greatest hope lies in rediscovering good public-serving leaders, although this remains something of a fantasy. The greatest source of faith is a Pentecostal brand of Christianity that gives its followers strength in knowing that God is on the side of the oppressed. I try to capture the vitality and the paradox of Nigeria in my poem called Lagos Lives, which begins as follows. Lagos lives, seeding and sprawling, steaming and smoking, grasping at the shoreline, gasping at the skyline, clinging to its oil-slicked ropes and singing of its toil-stripped hopes. Praise be to the God who sets his people free, to the fiery preacher on TV, to the Sunday throng that still believe. Praise be to the beggar and the banker, to the fisher and the swanker, to the struggler and the smuggler praise be. It is somewhat depressing to know that Nigeria's hardships are largely self-imposed, inflicted by the power-hungry on the opportunity-starved. The society is culturally robust but morally and economically weakened by the cancers of raw greed and desperate need. I'm not naive enough to believe that sustainable business heralds a new dawn for Nigeria. The general consensus among the people I spoke to was that most companies are stuck in the ages of philanthropy and marketing. Nevertheless, sustainable business has the potential to advance transparency and create a platform to discuss the ethics of business and government. It also has the potential to be corrupted, which sadly is already happening in some instances where corporate sponsorship of government CSR projects is practiced as an indirect form of bribery. Legislating CSR One of the reasons why I'm not wildly optimistic is another recent development in Nigeria, namely the move to legislate CSR. At the time that I visited, this took the form of the Bill for an Act to provide for the establishment of the Corporate Social Responsibility Commission. At one level, it is a highly ambitious, perhaps unrealistic, project. It aims, among other things, to create a CSR standard, integrate social responsibility into trade policies, conduct research into community needs, serve notices of social responsibility requests to organizations, identify corporate compliance with legislation on equality and non-discrimination, implement social and environmental regulations, determine the nature of CSR expected of companies according to size and classification, publish annual sustainability reports, encourage community investment, including a requirement to spend no less than 3.5% of gross annual profits per year on CSR, promote labor standards and collective social governance, ensure companies are accountable to all stakeholders, use fines and incentives to promote social responsibility, develop environmental guidelines, peg and monitor local contents in terms of employment and sourcing of raw materials, and introduce social responsibility compliance labels. Phew! 
My opinion is that this is an initiative set up to fail. Of course, on paper it sounds wonderful and the issues it is proposing to tackle are all important and laudable. But Nigeria should learn from the UK's mistakes. Britain created something similar, a minister for CSR, in 2003 and eventually abandoned it as a largely ineffectual strategy in 2010. The reason it failed in the UK and will most likely fail in Nigeria is the same reason that CSR departments often fail in companies. They are not integrated into the core functions of the organization and they do not have much political or economic clout. This is only exacerbated in developing countries where the capacity to monitor and enforce is severely challenged by weak, failing or corrupt governments. Of course, there are examples of good practice, many of which are highlighted in the excellent chapter on Nigeria in my book, The World Guide to CSR. I'm particularly encouraged by the emergence of global MOUs between companies and communities and conservation projects like the Chevron-sponsored urban forest that I visited. Yet even here one senses these are fragile fortifications against a relentless tide of oil-slicked growth and car-jammed urbanization. Nigerians seem to take all these things in their stride, as if fighting the behemoth of inefficiency is as futile as cursing the manic traffic. One illustration of this biblical job-like patience was during my trip when an almighty storm descended on Lagos, flooding the city and delaying the start of the conference by two hours and some speakers by six hours. Not only was I relieved that I was able to arrive earlier in the week, but it made me especially conscious of how much more vulnerable developing cities like Lagos, with its population of 17 million, are to the impending ravages of climate change. At the same time, it demonstrated the remarkable equanimity endurance and resilience of people in developing countries. One of the more encouraging sustainable business initiatives in Nigeria is the Social Enterprise Reporting Awards, or SERA, run by True Contact. It is refreshing to see reporting awards where a level of verification, including site visits, takes place, and where the UN Millennium Development Goals are used as criteria to judge sustainable business projects. I was asked to help redesign the questionnaire, initially literally on the back of a serviette or napkin, so that the awards start measuring strategic CSR rather than its historical focus on philanthropic and promotional approaches to CSR. Judging against transformative CSR or CSR 2.0 remains a little ambitious at this stage. Shine Africa Shine I realize that I've been quite critical in this chapter, but I should be clear that the tone of the debates on sustainable business is not all negative in the country, quite the contrary, in fact. On my visits, I noticed repeated mention of the impact that sound leadership is having on improving governance and living conditions in Lagos and River State. I sensed a real can-do attitude emerging. This confirms my hunch that the most important thing is first to demonstrate that better is possible, whether it is in tackling poverty, corruption, or unsustainable practices. Once people can see real benefits in one place, they're more willing to support reforms in another. This spirit of possibility was wonderfully demonstrated by a theatrical group at the Thistle Praxis 
CSR conference, which performed a fantastically powerful and funny sketch about sustainable business, alive with singing and dancing. Nigerians have their heroes to inspire them, from the incomparable musical legend Fela to the brave martyr Ken Sarawiwa. They also have a powerful story, now of mythological proportions, in the form of the Shell Saga, which we can all learn from. I recall Richard Boole, Managing Director of Benara Sustainability Assurance and Advice in Melbourne, telling me about his personal encounters with Ken Sarawiwa in the early 1990s. He drew a fascinating parallel between the Shell Nigeria tragedy and the blockbuster movie Avatar, in which the indigenous tribe of Pandora struggle against the exploitation and violence of a military-industrial institution intent on extracting the planet's mineral wealth at any cost. All this gets me to thinking that perhaps talk of an African century is not only premature but also misguided. Rather, what we should be focusing on is discovering, building and promoting Africa's distinctive contribution – What is it that Africans do well, better than anywhere else, and how can this be leveraged? Maybe it has something to do with their hospitable culture and their music, dance and style. Maybe Africa's distinctive gift to the world is in transforming the arts, fashion and tourism. Maybe Africa should stop trying to compete with China and India as a low-cost producer and rather discover its source of pride finding new, better and commercially beneficial ways to share its energy, its colour and its warmth with the world. As for me, I was honoured to be given a Nigerian, Yoruba name, Ebun, meaning the gift. It is an enduring reminder for me that Nigeria and Africa has many gifts for the world, despite facing some of the toughest social, environmental and ethical battles in the world. Nigeria and Africa are the forge, the burning furnace, where sustainable business faces its biggest challenges, from the resource curse and the continent's post-colonial legacy to the scourge of corruption and the epidemic of poverty. If sustainable business cannot help to improve the lives of people and quality of the environment in places like this, what purpose does it serve? After all, it is in countries like Nigeria and on continents like Africa that a small change can make a big impact. And so I want to wish my fellow Africans working in sustainable business all the very best. As I expressed it in my poem, it is time for Africa to shine. So shine, Africa, shine. Nourish our shared earth and feed our common roots. Green our tree of life and bear sweet fruits of peace. Shine, Africa, shine. Spark our imagination and confound us with your brilliance. Flame our deepest desires and dazzle us with your colours. Shine, Africa, shine. Fire our greatest passions and empower us with your stories. Blaze brightly on our soul quest and inspire us with your light.